welcome to an intercalated Olympopod. An Olympopod which we earnestly believe to be legitimate and canonical, but which will inevitably and unjustly be struck from the record of the IOC. But be assured, all medals, truths and half-truths, comments and rants will survive forever in our and all true Olympopod fans' memories. And all of it, just to spite Pierre de Coubertin. There are games in 1906. Why not wait until 1908? What was the rush? What was the rush? Well, the rush was to have uh, games that actually went pretty well, I would say, (laughs) 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 on reflection. But we briefly mentioned this at the end of our first Olympipod in 1896. And we said that the Greeks were keen to have the Olympics remain in Athens and to have it every four years and I believe the intercalated games the idea was to have every four years in between the actual Olympic Games was basically just a ruse by Pierre de Coubertin to keep the Greeks happy and just to to keep the real Olympic Games rotating around each city. In the end thanks to many things, mostly war, I made sure that that was not the case. But it did happen once here in 1906. And thank goodness it did happen. Because otherwise, I'm not sure if the Olympic Games would have continued if not for this. It really saved the day. Coubertin really did not want this event to go ahead. Like, he got quite stroppy about it. In the Review Olympique, the official uh, publication of the Olympics, he first of all, he failed to include the dates of the event. And then in a later edition in the direct run-up to the Games, he composed a 14-page piece on Athens, Greek culture, art and history, and managed to mention the Olympics a grand total of how many times, Chris? Once. Once! He mentioned it once. Just kind of in passing, oh, by the way, we're also having the Olympics there. Am I mistaken in thinking that in his like guide of Athens in this, that he didn't even mention the Olympic Stadium? No, not at all. Not at all. Like, <laughs> why would you, sure? Like, you'd probably just be in Athens anyway at that time. So it's all good. Such a jealous ex, isn't he? Yeah. But as you said, like, it, these games did resemble the Olympics that we know of much better than 1900 and 1904, which, as people will remember, stretched out over several months and were just a bit ridiculous. They were completely overshadowed by world fairs. But this Olympic Games took place over a perfectly normal two weeks. That's fine. You know, two weeks in and out. It was also the first Games to include both an opening and a closing ceremony. Mm. So the opening ceremony had nearly 900 athletes parade into the stadium. Uh, behind their country flags and nameplate. And it was attended by, reports say, up to 60,000 people. It was big. It was a big deal. And with the uh, opening ceremony, with the nations coming in, I think this was the first Olympics where there was actually the concept of nations as well. Beforehand, it was basically just guys and girls representing their clubs or their associations, whereas now teams entered as a nation. There was an Olympic village of sorts, for the very first time at this one, the, the Zapion was the name of the very first Olympic village. All in all, it basically set a lot of ideals and precedents for the Olympic Games, which yeah. might have taken a few more years to catch on, but they set the scene here. And as you mentioned, there were ladies. How many ladies? I think there were only six 
ladies in the actual event, right? But there was a few more ladies competing in the gymnastics. They were actually the first women to compete inside the Panathenaic Stadium. Now, would that not not have been a bit too sexy for the audience? It was just a bit too sexy for the audience, Ruth. I'm glad you asked. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> because the only the only account really describing these Danish gymnasts did I mention they were Danish before? Well, I'm mentioning it now. <laughs> the only account mentioning the ladies competing in the Panathenaic Stadium, which were the Danish gymnasts. So there was a, I think there were six teams competing in the actual team gymnastics competition, and three more teams competing basically just just for show exhibition style two men's teams and one danish women's team so uh, they weren't competing for the medals but they were a crowd favorite (laughs) i'm sure they were (laughs) (laughs) as as theodore cook who i believe was the team manager of the british fencing team which we can speak a bit about later and their extravagance he said that the most pleasing of the gymnastics exhibitions was that of the danish girls Short-skirted, neat-legged, led by a teacher in grey-flowing robes and light golden hair. Stunning! Stunning! That's uh, <laughs> all we have of the uh, sexy sexy Danish gymnasts. Do you know anything else about the uh, gymnastics event, or should I go into just a bit more of the, the bizarre aspects of it? I don't know much about it, but I know these kind of early Olympics, you were kind of allowed to have as many people on your team as possible. So I think... By the time we get to 1912, there was, you know, 46 people on the Swedish team or something. Were the teams big back then? Uh, they weren't necessarily weren't necessarily big, but it seems like everyone was getting uh, first place and second place at this one, and uh, which is a bit odd. So as I mentioned in the team event, there were six teams competing for medals. And on reflection, it appears that Norway won the team event. However... Any team that scored between 18 and 20 points in the event were given a first place. And then any team scoring 16 to 18 points were given second place. So Denmark's men, not the women, Denmark's men also got a first place. So Norway won, but Denmark also won. And of course, uh, the Danish ladies won first place in being sexy. So really, Denmark came out above yeah, Denmark stole the hearts of uh, of the yeah. crowd and Theodore Cook in particular, yes. Sure, sure, that's what they stole, sure. <laughs> there was the same issue with the uh, individual all-around event, which was even more extreme, because anyone getting between 90 and 100 points in the five-event uh, all-around got a first place, and anyone getting between 80 and 90 points got a second place. Now, there were 37 athletes who competed, 14 of them got a first place, 13 got a second place. So 27 of the 37 athletes were given a first or second place, technically. That's lovely. Pierre Passé was the overall best athlete. The Frenchman got a brilliant 97 out of 100, but it seems that he had to share first place with 13 other athletes. So that's a bit odd, but it's one of the few exceptions, I would say, because overall, it was almost like what we would consider today a real Olympics.
Have you got a hero of the games, Ruth? Is anyone particular? Uh, I mean, your hero, Ray Yuri, was uh, at these games as well, but I'm not sure if he really stole the headlines in Athens. Well, I don't know if I've ever told you this story, Chris, but at my very first um, athletics meet, so I was about 13 or 14, I was um, taken aside at the end by our athletics coach who told me maybe walking was more my thing. So... On the basis of that, yes, I, I want to talk about the walk, the 1500 meter walk. It's disgraceful what happened. <laughs> and George Monhag. Um, there, there, was, uh, there was a contemporary account which said, this ended as many walking competitions will end in dispute. And it is doubtful if a walk will ever appear on the Olympic program again. And it should not. Well, how wrong they were. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> The eventual winner, who I, I, I'm, I'm going to include as my favourite person of the Olympics, just for pure cheek, was uh, uh, George Bonag uh, from the USA. He'd competed in 1904 in the 800 metre run and didn't place. And at the, these games, he placed fourth in the five mile run and sixth in the 1500 metre. Disappointed, he thought he'd give a, the walk a go. So in that same account, they say Bonick did not expect to win this race. He just entered it for the spirit of it and thought he would like to see how he'd compare with other first class walkers. As mentioned, it was the first time walking featured at the Olympics and no one really understood the rules. As a result, there was a lot of skipping or in modern parlance, cheating. <laughs> uh, first... <laughs> The first two finishers were disqualified for this reason, and it was an effort to have Bonig uh, disqualified too. He was supported by Prince George and James Sullivan, who was the American observer of the games. So And scumbag yes. of the week in 1904. It was finally decided that there would have to be a walk-off between Bonig and the fourth finisher, the Canadian Don Linden. Uh, but Bonick just didn't turn up for that. So the committee said, grand, and awarded him first place. That's so stupid. <laughs> Why? <laughs> feel so bad for Don Linden. Because according to him, George Bonick actually asked for some advice on how to do it. Because uh, Don Linden was an experienced uh, walker and knew what it took to uh, to be a champion. But yeah, finishing fourth, uh, he got upgraded to second place because Robert Wilkinson, who finished first originally, and uh, Eugene Spiegler were disqualified for for this skipping slash running or half running or whatever it was. But if two of them got disqualified and two of the four judges thought that Bonehag had also cheated, I'm pretty sure he just cheated. Yeah, yeah. And I don't know why he got... Well, we do know why he got away with it because scumbag James... Sullivan and uh, and somehow inexplicably Prince George also believed that he was innocent. Prince George absolutely loved to stir the pot. We saw it in 1896. We'll see it here. He absolutely loved to stir the pot and just be like, intervene with the games, overrule various awards. I kind of admire him for adding a bit of drama to what is already a dramatic series of events. And setting up these extra events after the fact to, to try and sort out the winner and uh, satisfy some people, then just going back on it and saying that the original result stands 
really reminds me an awful lot of Paris 1900 as well. There was uh, so <laughs> that that aspect of the games hasn't quite disappeared yet. And we had the same problem in the 3000 meter walk because after a while, and as we got closer to the finish line, the athletes, I guess, with the excitement of it all and standing slash walking side by side, also broke into a bit of a, a skip towards the finish line because nobody wanted to lose. So it seems like you could pretty much get away with uh, whatever you wanted to do. But uh, thankfully for the, the Hungarian winner of it, uh, Georgi Standix, uh, the mayor of his town, then sent him uh, money to entertain the, his fellow athletes at the Olympic Village in celebration of his marvelous victory. So two big barrels of wine were rolled in and everyone got very happy and drunk. The Austrians and the Hungarians were happy and kissing each other. So that was a beautiful moment. So something good did come out of this horrible, horrible cheating and controversy in race walking, which uh, is not a sentence I ever thought would be spoken. Chris, I'm just going to say, as somebody who has taken part in a um, walking race when I was 13, uh, it's very easy to start skipping. It's very easy. It's very easy. So I, I, I have some sympathy to the skippers. I don't. Slide skip. Because I don't. <laughs> Despite all that, the event did manage to survive and is now a very well-respected event in modern athletics, it's fair to say, particularly the 50-kilometer walk, which I think is the longest uh, consecutive event because it just takes so damn long to uh, speed walk 50 kilometers. Despite how, yes, incredibly long, it is actually quite a dramatic event, I think. It is. So let's keep it. Let's keep yes, it. Yes, yes. There'll be no, uh, no <laughs> argument there. Yeah. yeah. There was a lot of drama on the track and field. And, and this this one did actually, unlike uh, 1900, there was a proper track and field. So Chris, tell us a little bit about some of the drama. We'll go right into what I think is the, maybe not the biggest controversy, but the biggest headline of this whole games. And I mentioned at the beginning about nationality and nations being included. And nationality was a big issue at these games, particularly around a few of the athletes there were three athletes who went over originally with the idea of representing ireland who were sent over by two irish organizations the athletic organization and the gaa the gaelic athletic association and one of those athletes was peter o'connor who the author of a biography about peter o'connor called the king of spring mark quinn described as the david beckham of his day <laughs> Peter O'Connor was the world record holder in the long jump, and he was actually invited to compete in the 1900 Games by Great Britain, but he refused because, in his eyes, he was Irish and was only ever going to compete for Ireland. So in 1906, Peter O'Connor and two other athletes, uh, Con Leahy and John Daly, were entered for the Intercalated Games in Athens by the, as I mentioned, the IAAA and the GAA with the idea of representing Ireland. They were given green blazers and a cap with a gold shamrock. They were given an Irish flag. However, when they arrived in Athens, they, were, they realized they were put under the British Olympic Council and would have to uh, compete under Great Britain not as Ireland. In the end, the uh, IOC did not vote in their favor. They decided, yes, they have to compete as a part of Great Britain. So in the long jump competition, there was a big battle between 
Peter O'Connor and Meyer Prinstein, who we'll all remember from the 1900 games, was the guy who punched uh, Krenzlein after he cheated. So uh, a big face-off between these two. So Meyer Prinstein was competing for the US team, and it was his world record in the long jump that Peter O'Connor had broken five years previously. So these two were the best of the era in the long jump. And not the standing long jump, the actual long jump. And there was only one judge for the competition who happened to be an American, Matthew Halpin. So Meyer Prinstein won gold. Uh, Second place was Peter O'Connor. Peter O'Connor wasn't too happy with this. He believed that he was cheated out of it with only one American judge. uh, Felt that he was unfairly treated. Nevertheless, nobody decided that uh, he was right. And he did indeed finish in second place. And as he was uh, accepting his silver medal, he decided to hop onto the flagpole at the stadium, climbed up it, and had his Irish flag in hand. So he got up 20 feet in the air on the pole and started waving the flag for a few minutes while his fellow Irishman, Con Leahy, who was a high jump champion, defended the pole and also had his flag in hand. Much to the disappointment and chagrin of the British, but much to the enjoyment of everyone else. A couple of days later, in the hop, step and jump, or the triple jump, as we know it these days, O'Connor finished first place, just ahead of Con Leahy. uh, At the age of 34, he is the oldest ever gold medal winner in this event. So, finally, Ireland was represented. And uh, it seems like we're talking about Ireland a lot in these early games. But never fear, because very soon Ireland will fade into obscurity in the Olympic Games. So we, we, we had our time. There was an Irish-American athlete as well who was considered one of the very best athletes of all time. And actually at this Games scored the greatest number of total points of any athlete at an Olympic Games. When we talk about points... In this uh, regard, it's uh, athletes who have finished in a high enough placing in a number of events. Uh, This guy is Martin Sheridan. Do you want to hear a bit more about him? Yes, I do. Okay, well, he was was a thrower, a big Irish-American from County Mayo originally, described by Jim Thorpe, who was also a fantastic athlete in 1918, as the greatest athlete in the world. So, uh, Martin Sheridan basically had no problem in winning the discus in Athens, which he'd also won in St. Louis two years previously. He won the shot putt as well and got silvers in the standing long jump and the standing high jump behind the magnificent uh, Ray Urie and a silver in the stone throwing competition as well. So all of that made him the greatest Olympian of the games overall and for his accomplishments he was presented with a ceremonial javelin by king george uh, which is quite funny because the javelin's the only thing he didn't throw at those games uh, <laughs> and the javelin is still on display actually in a local pub near his hometown in county mayo in ireland all that considered he was supposed to be the favorite heading into the pentathlon the athletic pentathlon, which was going to take place for the very first time. But uh, he'd actually stabbed himself in the leg with his spikes on his shoes. Ah! Yeah, which uh, left him pretty uh, torn up 
in uh, one of his legs. And so he competed in the first event of the pentathlon, uh, only finishing third in the standing long jump and decided that enough was enough and uh, he was going to bow out of that. Do you know which events took place in the first pentathlon? Uh, I don't, but I'm going to give it a shot. Okay. Shooting? No. Oh, okay. Running. Yes, it was very athletics focused, okay, except okay. for one event. Okay. okay, so running, swimming? No. Gymnastics? No. <laughs> okay, this, this could be a very long segment, Chris. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> okay, okay, tell me. <laughs> Unless, Maybe. <laughs> unless, we, unless we want to keep on going with this segment, I'll just, I'll just, no. I'll just, I'll just list off everything that was on the the uh, <laughs> program. In yeah, well, you'll get there eventually. Then, in that case, uh, oh, there weren't that many events, wasn't there? Was no, well, wasn't. there were like there was uh, like seventy eight events. So there's enough to keep going for for a while. <laughs> for a while, but the athletic pentathlon uh, consisted of the standing long jump, which was a hint I gave you just moments ago. It was, uh, yeah, it was the first event. Yeah. Uh, we had the Greek style discus throw, which is different to the freestyle discus that we know. The javelin. There was the one hundred and ninety two meter sprint, which is the stade race, and then we had wrestling in Ooh. at the end which is uh, a nice mix-up, particularly for all of the like traditional athletes who would be uh, running and uh, jumping and throwing. It turns out here that much like the decathlon and heptathlon nowadays, or the modern pentathlon nowadays, that being good at one or two of these events is basically no good to you. But being a jack-of-all-trades uh, will make you, in the end, the master of the pentathlon. And that is very much the case with Hjalmar Melander from Sweden, who proved to be just that. And he managed to win gold despite never finishing higher than third place in any of the events. But at the same time, he never finished lower than seventh. And his consistency was the key as he ended up winning gold in the very first, I guess you could say, modern pentathlon. But it's more like the decathlon and heptathlon that we would know of today. Now, the marathon at the 1906 Games were nowhere near as dramatic as they had been two years previously in St. Louis. Uh, there appears to have been a marked decrease in cheating, messing and strickening taking. Ah, I know, I know, it's disappointing. No poison this <laughs> time? Not that we know of. I mean, th th there very probably definitely was, but um, not on records. <laughs> Um, but we do have at least one interesting character to look at, who is Billy Sharon. William John Sharon was a Canadian athlete who trained with St. Patrick's Athletic Club Hamilton, Ontario. He was a working man, so he wasn't one of these gentleman Olympians who could, you know, flounce off to global sporting events whenever the spirit took him. So financing his Olympic journey was going to be a bit of a struggle. His club reportedly raised $90 for him, which wasn't nearly enough. So the story goes, Billy took the $90, placed it all on a horse, Sicily, at six to one odds, and won. Huzzah! <laughs> now, the story is contradicted by an unnamed relative. Like, put your name to it if you're going to make, if you're going to contradict the story. Uh, many, many years later, who claimed Billy was a famously bad gambler, and to quote him, never won anything in his life. Uh, that's clearly untrue, based on this story, not just the gambling part. 
<laughs> exactly. Sounds like a bitter cousin to me. It, it does. It's someone who was slow. But he must have got the money somehow because seven weeks before the games began, Billy arrived in Athens on a cattle boat. He was able to use this time to acclimatise and train, but he also did have to do some work. In Hamilton, he had worked as a brakeman for a train company. So in Athens, over these several weeks, he began working as a porter in the central Athens railway station, much endearing him to the locals. But not so much that they wanted him to win uh-huh. their event, what they saw as their event. Mm. Not a huge amount is known about the early stages of the race, but I'm going to read you a snippet from an article published in 1906 by the infamous James E. Sullivan, mm. the American commissioner to the Olympic Games, concerning the final moments of the event and the atmosphere in the stadium. He was not tired. Only his thin clothes were wet from perspiration. Having reached before the royal seats, he bowed and was carried from shoulder to shoulder through the royal entrance to the dressing room. The sorrow of the spectators was succeeded by a silent grief, soon after the departure of the victor. Silence reigns all over the stadium. It is a silence of the highest calamity. A general disgust is depicted on the faces of all. No one could believe that the victor of the race is a foreigner. Fifteen minutes have passed in agony. No one moved from a seat. Fifty thousand spectators are standing, waiting for the second victor. New whistles and a great excitement beyond the stadium announce the arrival of the second victor. He is a Greek, the crowds are shouting. All in vain. He is Svanberg, a Swede. Soon after him comes the third victor, who is Frank, an American. So sad days. In Athens. John Sullivan may be a scumbag, but he sure can set the scene. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so as the article mentions, Prince George uh, ran the last 50 meters with Billy. Again. Yeah. Uh, yeah. He liked doing that. I tell you, these Georges really like to intervene uh, in these games. But so, yeah. so now in this event, there was no gold medal. Uh, he received a crown cut from an olive tree, a statue of Athena and a live lamb. Nice. Yeah, I mean, maybe we need to bring that back. He was handsomely rewarded, though, right? Uh, when he got back home. Cause, yeah, because on returning home, he received $5,000 from the city of Hamilton and another 400 from the city of Toronto. And this was much to the chagrin of Coubertin. He already didn't like the nice six games, in fairness. Like, um, but now he thought that this just pulled his entire vision into disrepute. That, you know, this, this was flies in the face of the amateur nature of the sport. I, I think like in, in this particular regard, he has a bit of a selective memory. Like this is not the first time uh, the winner of the marathon gets, you know, a lifetime supply of chocolate or free haircuts for life. But anyway, Sharing doesn't seem to have cared what Kubertan thought because he did take the money and he retired from athletics. Yeah, and, and fair play to him. I mean, I don't understand this idea from Pierre de Coubertin because in ancient Olympics, when an athlete was victorious and they went back to their hometown or their home region, they were showered with gifts and prizes and tax exemptions for the, the rest of their life. So, yes, there should be rewards for such uh, remarkable feats. So well done to Sharing. And um, there's another like little bit to that story, which I don't think is, uh, it's not, I'm not sure whether it's 100% true, because he was wearing uh, a shamrock on his vest because he was competing for, what was it, the St. Patrick's St. Athletic Patrick's, Club? Yeah. yeah, St. Patrick's Athletic Club in uh, in Canada. 
And this inspired the logo of Panathinaikos, which is a very famous Greek football and multi-sport club, which has a Shamrock logo. And yeah, some people believe that that was inspired by Billy Shering's exploits. On to the big boys now, the wrestling and weightlifting. And there's not too much to talk about in the wrestling side, except for, I guess, a, a little champion of champions, uh, kind of a royal rumble of sorts. And well, the Greeks at these Olympics really loved the wrestling. Yeah, They were huge fans of it. They they came in there in huge numbers to, to watch it. Uh, this, despite the fact that the Greeks won nothing. They won diddly squat at these games when it came to wrestling, but they still loved it. Uh, these wrestling bouts could take hours to decide a victor, and that fact will uh, come into sharp focus in future Olympipods, I feel. But right now, we'll just focus on who won what. There were three weight classes. There was the lightweight, which was won by Austria's Rudolf Falzel. There was the middleweight, which was won by Finland's Werner Vekman, and the heavyweight won by Søren Marinus Jensen. After this, the three champions were pitted against each other in an overall championship. Now, this seems like an interesting idea, <laughs> but having a lightweight, a middleweight, and a heavyweight face each other sounds a bit like the early days of the UFC. Who do you think won, Ruth? The oh. lightweight champion, the middleweight champion, or the heavyweight champion? Oh, I, I, I don't know, Chris. I, you're kind of putting me on the spot. Was it the heavyweight? It was the heavyweight champion, Søren Marinus Jensen. He had to win two bouts to win. Uh, there was a semi-final against the lightweight, Watzel. And uh, he beat him and then beat Vekman in the final. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> Did nobody kind of raise an objection? I suppose I, when you think like the uh, tug of war had no weight classes, but like, yeah, I, 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 it was no one kind of like, what's going on here? Yeah, I suppose like, people like to argue even nowadays in, in things like boxing and MMA, like whether a smaller guy could beat a larger guy due to his speed or, or fitness and um, not, not in, not in wrestling, <laughs> not, not in 1906 <laughs> wrestling being a lot larger uh, helps. And I think uh, Søren Marinus Jensen also competed in the super heavyweight division in 1908. So when we talk heavyweight, he was a real, real heavyweight. So uh, <laughs> I just <laughs> I love the idea that in the semifinal, he had to face the lightweight champion. They wouldn't put the lightweight and the middleweight up against each other and see which one could face the heavyweight. <laughs> Straight away, they put the biggest boy against the smallest boy. And uh, yeah, no surprises what happened there. Should this be reintroduced for uh, into the Olympics? I feel pretty bad after a couple of, uh, couple of uh, Olympic pods ago, I took out wrestling in favor oh, of yeah. kabaddi oh, yeah. so yeah, we can't, so, um, yeah kabaddi, maybe kabaddi, kabaddi. maybe a, an all-round championship is its way back into my favor but for now no i haven't been convinced now chris i have gone on the record to say weightlifting is the greatest olympic sport in the history of great olympic sports and as we work through these olympopods and intercalated to olympopods uh the truth of that statement just becomes more and more apparent and <laughs> um, at, at the 1906 games, there was a bit of a controversy. 
The main players of this were the Greek Dimitris Tophilos and the Austrian Josef Steinbach. There was some confusion from the outset as to the rules of the two-handed competition, which resulted in Steinbach's best lifts not being recorded and which handed Tophilos the victory. Steinbach was not happy and tried very vocally to have this overturned to no avail. So in protest, he walked back out into the stadium and lifted the winning weight several times above his head. The spectators were not impressed by the sportsmanship, um, but he did get his revenge when he took victory in the one-handed event. Dimitri Tophilos is a very interesting character himself. He was known as an exceptionally well-built youth. But then again, I mean, we keep on hearing this phrase. So I think this might just have been a generic phrase about every Olympian uh, <laughs> in, the, in the first half of the Olympic history. Uh, but as a child, he suffered a catastrophic injury to one of his arms. It was entirely smashed under the wheel of a cart and doctors wanted to amputate. His father said, absolutely not. And he eventually recovered. Uh, but it meant that one of his arms was noticeably shorter than the other, which you would imagine would be a massive disadvantage in a two-handed lift. He seemed to manage. I'm not sure, but like his technique must have been odd. And the two-handed lift, are they lifting two separate weights with both arms? No. Or are they lifting one weight straight up? No, okay. they're lifting one weight straight so up. So we've, we've progressed since uh, the first Olympics then. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, yeah, so he had one arm, most noticeably shorter than the other. In later life, I think in 1910, he moved to the US where he became a professional wrestler, uh, known for his stubbornness rather than necessarily his strength or skill. So he spent, he spent a lot of time in hospital, it would seem. But had a very, but had a very good, uh, a legendary career, if not necessarily a good career. Very good. Do you want to know who the first ballers in Olympic history were? When I say ballers, what does it mean to you, Ruth? It's not really It's not really in my vocabulary, to be perfectly honest, Chris. I guess the, the best definition of a modern-day baller in the Olympics are the basketballers of the, the US team, who... With Which is where the phrase comes from. Literally. Because you put me on the spot, I have now gone on to Wiktionary. Okay. Uh, slang, one who plays basketball, a basketballer... African-American vernacular slang, one who has the swag and lives an extravagant lifestyle. Yeah, that's more the end of that, which I was referring to. But yes, the, the dream team were the the ballers of the uh, contemporary Olympic Games. And they're well known for upgrading their accommodation at the Olympics. So they don't tend to slum it with the rest of the athletes in the Olympic Games. They tend to uh, live on yachts or big cruise ships, uh, as they did in 2016, and also in Athens 2004. Did you see their boat in Rio? It is incredible. Like, that, that, that was not a yacht, that was like a cruise liner. The reason I'm mentioning this is because little did you know, maybe little did they even know, that they were inspired by the 1906 British fencing team. <laughs> the original ballers on a yacht. So while everyone was, uh, we might we might call them spikers now. <laughs> while everyone was, uh, while everyone else was slumming it on uh, their ships and trains on the way to Athens, particularly those in the ships who had to uh, deal with the tough conditions thanks to Vesuvius erupting at the time. 
on their way to Athens, where a few injuries were caused as well to some athletes due to the terrible sea conditions, the British fencing team were cruising around the Mediterranean and lived on a yacht which belonged to Thomas Evelyn Scott Ellis, who was the Baron Howard de Walden. And they were all competing in the fencing competition. They didn't do particularly well, but that doesn't really matter. They were balling. They were living on the yacht while everyone else was slumming it at the Olympic Village Zepion. So I'm mentioning them not just because of the, they are a true inspiration to the American basketballers, but also that there's a hint that they had something to do with bringing the 1908 Olympics to London. So because they were all true gentlemen and rich, they were able to start coordinating alongside uh, King Edward to moving the 1908 Olympics from Rome to London, which we'll get into a lot more in our next Olympipod. So yeah, the uh, British fencing team, an inspiration to all of us. The pointies, pointers, yeah. Living a pointer lifestyle. So Chris, are there any um, sports like, can we even take out a sport? It's uh, not an official Olympopod. This is an intercalated Olympopod. Oh, can yes. We take, are we good? We can. Are we got to take out a Okay, yes. Do we each have to do one now? Or wait, who's, who's goes it? It's your turn, Ruth. I actually haven't put any thought into it, so I'm just going to go with my gut. I've already said, like, I've already mentioned the 10,000 meter run. I feel like I just have to stick with that, uh, get rid of that from track and field. And I'm going to add in a new track and field event. Oh, Okay, so I'm getting rid of the 10,000 meter for all the reasons mentioned in the first Olympopod. Can you, can you go over those quickly? Yeah, yeah. So, I, I mean, mainly it's just, it's a bit too long for people to be interested. Like, we've got a 5,000. If you're in a 10,000 meter, either run faster and go in the 5,000 meter or run slower but for longer and go into the marathon. I don't think we need a 10,000 meter at the Olympics. Um, and, and that's and that is the Olympopod Hill I am going to die on this week. Um, yeah, but I mean okay. the <laughs> the British the British will not be happy with that. Well, particularly the BBC, who very recently uh, released like the twenty five greatest British moments in Olympic history, and number one was Super Saturday at the London twenty twelve games, in which Greg Rutherford won the long jump. Jessica Ennis-Hill won the heptathlon and Mo Farah won the 10,000 meters to cap it all off. But in your world, that never happened. No, it did happen. I'm just saying it's not going to happen ever again. <laughs> I, I'll, be, I'll be honest, Chris, like if you want to get really controversial, I'm not a huge fan of the 100 meter either. You know, I, I, I like... I oh like... <laughs> my God. The original Olympic event you're not a fan of? The short sprint? Like, I, I don't know. I just, I, this thing is too fast. Like, I, I don't oh like... My that are too fast or too slow or like that sweet spot I'll, in the middle I think that's the end of us I think we're <laughs> going to be we're going to be cancelled in the Olympic world okay, now, but, so we'll, but wait it. until you hear what I'm replacing the 10,000 meter with and then maybe people will be back on site go on the greasy pole <laughs> we're going back to the mid 19th century in the Zappas games huh yeah yeah, we're going to bring the greasy pole no I mean there was there was quite a good like if you don't want the greasy pole I'll let you have a bit of input into this um I'd be I'd be up for having um a rope climbing event instead 
But I think I think I'll go for Greasy Pearl. I think just stick with my gut, go for Greasy Pearl. A lot of different countries still, you know, compete in Greasy Pearls. So I, th- I think we would have like, I think we'd have quite a good representation of the Greasy Pearl. I also think it will just be very entertaining to watch. And for people who don't know what the Greasy Pearl is, it's a pole that's quite greasy that you have to climb up to the top of. <laughs> that is I, it explained in one. <laughs> I have no uh, objection to it. That at least stands out to me right now. The only question I have is, it feels a bit more like a gymnastics event than a track and field event. So, I mean, the um, rope climbing was on track and field in 1906. So I'm kind of taking inspiration from that. But instead of a rope, which I think just kind of feels... Uh, and that, I think, is more gymnasticky. But I just think that a greasy pole, um, it also kind of harks back to that original idea of, you know, having life-saving and such things at the Olympics. Because, I mean, I don't know, maybe someone needs to climb up a greasy pole to save a cat sometimes. So a Greasy pole vault would be interesting. <laughs> okay. I, think, I, think, I think we're now putting lives at risk. But yes, yeah, 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 sure. Imagine that. Okay, no, okay. we'll stick with Greasy Pole. Greasy Pole, yeah. Look, look, you know, in a future, in a future event, I, I might get a lot of hate mail about the 10,000 uh, meter and I might change my, um, change my view on it and maybe I'll put it in instead of the 100 meter in a later Olympic pot. Mm-hmm. Put it back in. And if people wish to, uh, to send you a hate mail, how do they get in touch? Uh, they can. They have to follow us first on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and they're all. We're in everywhere. All Olympopods. Uh, I'm. I'm not prepared to give out our email yet. No. <laughs> <laughs> but, I, I'm just not sure that's a good idea. I'm not sure that's a recipe for, uh, yeah, success. <laughs> Stick to Twitter then. If you want to send hate mail, follow us on Twitter. Send us a DM or just add us. And if you also want to send some not hate mail uh or some normal messages of support you can do that as well yeah yeah like it doesn't have to be hate mail <laughs> so would either of us have got a medal in the 1906 intercalated games and, and like keep it in mind that it wouldn't have really counted so no pressure oh is there anything i think based on the ability to cheat I would try running the race walk and see yeah, what well, happens. That's, that's my choice too. Okay. That's my choice well. too. Okay, we're both, going, we're both going into the walk. Perfect. Okay. <laughs> both of us are going into the 1500 meter walk. If if you beat me or if both of us are disqualified, at least I'll get honorable mention as a woman who barged her way onto the men's field. So yeah, we, go, we can both go in the 1500 meter and we can try and recreate that race at some point in the future yeah. <laughs> to see who who amongst us would have won me who came seventh uh, when i was 13 in a race walk or you who has never competed in a race walk yes the problem with this one and it's not really a problem but the problem was that the events were kind of normal like there wasn't that many ridiculous events which is unusual considering the last two pods uh probably the most bizarre one would have been the tandem cycling event. Um, I don't think I would have had a great chance in that. Yeah, I, I, Chris, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be completely honest. I'm not sure you'd have a great chance at that event if you have to compete with me. Um, <laughs> I'm a very below average football player, but it seems like anyone could show up and play in the football event. Okay. Uh, which only had four teams. Uh, Denmark won it, and I believe Smyrna 
who won silver had like seven British guys who just showed up and competed for them. Now, Smyrnia uh, was part of the Ottoman Empire at the time. So I believe if we were counting medals, it would go to Turkey. But uh, yeah, a bunch of British guys who didn't have their own team just showed up and played for that team. So yeah, I would I would have just showed up and played for the Smyrnian football team and got myself a medal. And although not particularly flexible, I would have turned up for sexy gymnastics. Yeah, and well, I mean, the the fact that there were no bizarre games uh, or bizarre events for the most part, the fact that we had an Olympic village, we had uh, the concept of nations, we had medals. In the end, the IOC decided that this was not going to be in the record books, which I find kind of bizarre because it very much did happen. It really did. And if anything, it was the most official since 1896. And everyone at the time thought that it was an Olympics, uh, apart from Pierre de Coubertin. Yeah, so I, I agree. I agree. Maybe we should start a petition to get it reinstated in the annals as an official Olympic Games. In that, also give the the medals that Irish athletes won <laughs> to Irishmen. Yeah, yeah. I, I think I think uh, Britain is going to have a say about that. Yeah. Although the intercalated games never happened again, thanks to uh, war, uh, among other things, the intercalated games kind of did come around in the end because by 1994, we had the very first winter olympics that didn't take place at the same year as the summer olympics so technically now we have intercalated games they're just the winter olympics and in many people's eyes they're as equally regarded as the summer olympics i said it i said in many people's eyes and that's not me as someone who now lives in Sweden and used to live in Austria, but two of the few countries who care about it an awful lot. So we do kind of have intercalated games in the end. So thank you, Athens 1906, for the innovations and the inspiration to keep the Olympic Games alive. And now that we've had this beautifully organized, compact games, surely it's only uphill from here as we go into London 1908. Right, Ruth? Let's see, Chris. Let's see. What? You're saying it wasn't only two weeks long? 